Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello, it's the Reverend John St. Germain, and once again, the uh, switchboard will not play my opening music, and it'll probably start about halfway through my introduction. Tonight, we're going to talk of kings and queens and gods and goddesses and pomegranates, and we're also going to talk of uh, lapidolite, which is a, a nice little lavender stone. So, those of you who enjoy uh, music... Here it is. Why don't you come back in about a minute? And um, with a, with a drink, and we'll start our program. Well, we're back. We never left, actually, did we? And uh, it's um, it's a rather funny thing. I I was for some reason I was thinking about Billy the Kid, and uh, that led me to other speculations. I wrote some years ago when I was in college for the third time in my fifties. Um, I took a creative writing class as part of the new degree I was working on uh, called Blood Debt. I had actually written Blood Debt some 15 years earlier, and it was about uh, a small town in the south. It's actually a small town near where I live, and I called this town Adoration. And uh, many of the uh, short stories and anecdotes and books I wrote took place in Adoration. And it was about a, a rich, dynastic southern family that had many secrets. And uh, uh uh, a chap's older brother was killed, and it looked like it was an accident, but he figured it, he, he assumed it was a murder. And it was complicated because he was the black sheep of the family. Very dis, The family was disappointed in him, and uh, he always looked up to his older brother, and he secretly was in love with his brother's wife, his sister-in-law, and many things happened in this novel. But at one point, the, um, the female protagonist, the uh, sister-in-law, his uh, – his uh, love interest uh, reaches in her purse and pulls out a parabellum, a nine millimeter parabellum that she has in her purse and shoots a bad guy. And at the time I was at Indiana university and I found a really good book editor. <clears throat> she was the archivist in the library, an excellent line editor. And she redlined my book quite a bit and she was very good. She spotted a lot of stuff that was male biased and Southern biased. And a lot of her suggestions I took, but she said, no, 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 no woman would carry a, no, a woman doesn't carry guns in her pocketbook, you know, in her purse. That's just, that is unrealistic. And I, I lived in Indiana, Bloomington, Indiana, in the Midwest. And I said, you've never known a woman to carry a gun in her purse. She goes, no, who would, who would do that? And I said, well, I grew up in Tennessee in Knoxville. And just off the top of my head, I can name 12 women that I know 
who regularly carry guns in their purses. And right now I can tell you my wife knows three of her friends who carry guns in their purses. Um, I can tell you that right now. You're not talking on the radio right now. And, uh, but she, she didn't believe it. And she's, and you know, now she would probably say that they were, um, uh, Republicans. And in fact, she didn't like the male, uh, protagonist's best friend because he was, uh, um, a Republican, um, conservative policeman. She didn't like him. And I realized that because of this bias she had as a, um, uh, a hyper liberal, a hyper liberal, uh, not just you know, not liberal. I'm not going to talk about liberals and conservatives, but she was a very hyper liberal, college insulated um, university archivist. She didn't understand the real world that liberals and conservatives can actually get along and be friends. She was used to extremes. That if, if you're a liberal and a hyper liberal, you cannot, you cannot, no, no, you cannot have a, a conservative friend who, whose sister. And, would carry a gun in her purse for self-defense. And um, I realize when I read social media that uh, people often have uh, social identities that are extremes. And for some reason, I was thinking about this because I had a friend who was going to a uh, cosplay convention dressed as Billy the Kid, and um, he was carrying a replica, Colt 45. And some of these replicas are really good. All you have, would have to do, I think, is put a firing pin in them and they'd shoot. And he was pulled over by the police. And this was Halloween. It was uh, a convention that was held on Halloween. And, he's, and they wondered, they said, why are you dressed like this, basically? And uh, he was still in character. And the police pulled him over and they said, get out of the car. And uh, uh, they said, assume the position. And, uh, and uh, they saw he had the... They were examining his gun, and he, he said, uh, and he, he was a smartass like me and my son and everybody. And he said, uh, he said, uh, gentlemen, you you got your huckleberry. Cracked me up, you know. That's what Doc Holliday said. Apparently, gentlemen, you you got your huckleberry. Uh, they thought he had a real gun, and he was really Billy the Kid who dressed as a cowboy. And I think this is what social media does to us, uh, or to some people. I think that we can't separate reality from. Uh, the artificial life of uh, academic uh, concept. So uh, understand there's a difference. There's the ideas, the the world in our head and the world of reality. And we, we really do have to tell the difference. Uh, I was reminded of this when the cathedral, the cathedral Notre Dame was on fire and people were making political points about it. And a lot of people didn't didn't seem to realize that the Notre Dame Cathedral no longer was owned by the Catholic Church. It was a state monument. And they didn't realize that it was not built by slaves. It was built in the 1500s by laborers who were paid. Um, a lot of artists were contracted. Uh, artisans, artists uh, put work into this beautiful historic monument. The trees where uh, these trees grew um, in the 1500s, some of the 1400s. Uh, these, you know, these trees, 800, some of these trees are, what, 800 years old? Um, gone. The roof, the roof was gone. Um, this living edifice, and, and yes, buildings have spirit, uh, was damaged, and people were making jokes about it. And I didn't comment on it. Um, you know, I did not. I had, I had some very eloquent friends who did, because I've, I've come to realize that, um, uh, I don't know, younger people, less experienced people, um, perhaps, have not experienced life enough to pause and reflect before putting their fingertips to the keyboards. It, it's such a knee-jerk reactionary society. It, it's like the people in traffic who flip you off instinctively before they even realize the consequences of their actions. And uh, we should be more thoughtful. We should be more mindful. We should stop and reflect about the real world. The world hurts and people hurt and we should be more mindful. Which brings me to my stone of the week, which is uh, Lepidolite. 
And this is a, uh, a wonderful uh, grayish purple stone. Um, in some iterations, it can be mistaken for um, amethyst if you're not really um, hip in stone identification. Um, it's flakier. It, it's uh, it looks more, it's got a mica look to it. It's like mica amethyst. And um, this is a uh, because it's got a, a high degree of lithium in it. So uh, lithium and lipidolite are very good for anxiety, mood stabilization, uh, healing from uh, shock. Uh, if you had a trauma, a sudden surprise, a sudden shock, by all means seek medical attention. But these stones, lipidolite and lithium, are good to have. Now, you do not use either of these in a direct infusion. Don't drop these in water and drink the water. Uh, they both will infuse too much of themselves into the water. Uh, use an indirect method by putting these in... Um, remember Alka-Seltzer bottles, the glass Alka-Seltzer bottles? Uh, am I too old a mule for that? But there used to be these long slender Alka-Seltzer bottles. They had the Alka-Seltzer tablets. Those were perfect. You'd put, you'd put crystals, uh, crystal chunks in those and put the lid on and put that underwater and l let the uh, emanations of the crystals diffuse into the water, take them out, and your crystals were dry. Never, water never touched crystal, but it penetrated through. Uh, those were great for that sort of infusion. Um, Another trick I've done is just take a handful of the crystals and put them on a plate and then put a wine bottle over them because the wine bottle has that foot at the bottom of the of the uh, bottle. Uh, put your uh, liquid, your uh, um, water in the wine bottle, cork it, let it sit, put a little bit of brandy in it, uh, and uh, decant it. So you can um, get past things, stabilize uh, elevate your mood, uh, get past anxiety and fear, and sometimes anger. It's a very soothing crystal. I know people who wear it as jewelry, uh, as a pendant. Um, and um, if you need to find that moment of stillness, that quiet spot within, um, get you a piece of lip lipidolite and keep it handy. That's our crystal of the week. We're the Crystal Silence League, founded by Claude Alexander Conlon, around 1917 or so, for the purpose of distributing and emanating and radiating positive thought and prayer for all those in need of such. <clears throat> the cynical say for the purpose of making money, but he did not make much money on the Crystal Silence League. He about broke even on the sales of crystals and stuff. He made most of his money as a performer before then, <clears throat> and he was a highly paid psychic and spiritual consultant to the rich and famous of Hollywood. And uh, from what I, I heard, um, one of the old guys told me that he gave uh, lessons to um, uh, Charlie Chaplin and uh, uh, some of the other fellows, uh, uh, some of the other actors, one-on-one uh, -on -one lessons. <clears throat> so he was a consultant. He was a psychic counsel a counselor and uh, uh, after his retirement from the stage and made a living doing that, and the Crystal Silence League was a labor of love for him. Um, I believe he did probably make a little bit of money on it, but by no means is this the main source of his income, as many cynics would uh, would have you believe. They they imagine him selling horoscopes, you know, at $2 each and becoming a millionaire. That's not, that's not how it happened. <clears throat> Excuse me, I got a frog in my throat. I've been talking all day, all day long. Um, people would send prayers, and he would pray for them. And sometimes there were stacks and stacks and stacks of these prayers in mailbags. He'd lay his crystal ball upon them and pray. Today, the pastors of the Crystal Silence League do similar things. We don't do stacks of them. Usually, we'll print out about 10 of them and put our crystal ball on our altar and pray for them. You can see in our slideshow uh, an altar of one of our pastors with the prayers distributed around it. And uh, we try to do as many as possible. If you um, go to our page, you can pray for members or cells. And uh, that's www.crystalsilenceleague.org. And if you come to the Hoodoo Heritage Festival, we will be 
giving out a copy of our new book, uh, Secrets of the Crystal Silence League, during my presentation on Sunday, entitled Secrets of the Crystal Silence League. I'll be giving you a little lesson on crystal gazing. You'll be given a small uh, crystal ball or two to uh, carry with you, and it's small, too. Um, size does not matter in crystal work. Um, we'll practice crystal gazing. We'll practice crystal projection and reception. And you'll get a copy of the book and a few little crystal balls to take with you. And uh, be quite exciting. And uh, after that, we'll be practicing um, uh, the professional presentation of uh, business cards. It'll be quite quite good. But www.crystalsilenceleague.org. Uh, we've been working on our gift shop too. I believe you can um, um, get into our gift shop now too and buy stuff. So hey. But. I'm going to read the prayers backward this time. I never make it to the bottom of my list. So I'm going to read them from the bottom to the top. Let's see how that works for us. So we'll start with prayer ID 82043, who says, Dear St. Jude, please bless me with a financial windfall. I promise to put the money back out into the economy and not hoard it or be greedy. I would like to buy some things, so please bless me with it so I may bless others. I'm out of funds. Yes, send some right away. I would love some happy paying clients. Amen. Hugs and kisses. Thank you so much. I appreciate all that you do. Amen. And prayer ID 82045. I'm ready to have a healthy relationship. I'm done being alone. RM will be the one for me. He'll burn with a passion for me and ask me out soon. Prayer ID 82046. Please, St. Espedee, I, I pray to you. I pray for my money to come into my account quickly. I need to do a few things and make sure my son has what he needs. I pray for the refund to be in my account by today or tomorrow. I also pray for my child support money to come through. Amen. And prayer ID 82047. Please pray that, my, that the stomach pain and related conditions my son Jay has been experiencing is something minor that is manageable treatable or resolve itself with diet pray for favorable results when he goes to the doctor amen prayer id 82048 i pray that rc birthday oh this is birthday will be reunited with cj the ex-wife is using witchcraft to keep them separated let her stop putting spells on him J, let him go back to C. Let him only desire C, uh, Joseph sexually, and nobody else. Let him text and call me to apologize for his behavior. Let him think about what he has done to hurt C, Joseph. Amen. Prayer ID 82049. I want our friendship to work out for us to love and treat each other with respect and for K to be Kind, understanding, and gentle. Amen. Prayer ID 82050, who says, Bless me with two tenants for my apartment so I can clear my debts with the credit union. Amen. A lot of money prayers right now. I wonder what's going on astrologically. We need an astrologist to weigh in on this. Prayer ID 82051. Praise to be successful in the SEA results for 2019, St. George's College, uh, Barataria. Amen. Prayer ID 82053. I ask humbly that today is a good confirmation to my desire. Thank you, God, Goddess of Venus, St. Martha, and Holy Spirit, for sending my love, why, to me. After a long, anxious wait, it happened at a time I least expected. A prayer that came true. Please let us meet often and love each other passionately and faithfully. Thank you for today, and I'm grateful for the bonding time. I ask that we are together in a committed way. Let him show me his caring and loving feelings toward me. In Jesus' name, amen. And prayer ID 82054. I pray for there to be a relationship, restoration, between T and I, so that we can have a healthy, respectful, loving, and fruitful relationship together. 
I pray for all fear to be gone and for a strong commitment to be made between us leading to marriage. Step at a time, honey. Step at a time. I pray for a blessing from God on this relationship. If it is not in God's will or it will not be a good, healthy, loving, and respectful relationship, then I pray for me to be able to let it go easily and without ongoing pain. Amen. Prayer ID 82055. Santa Marta, please hear my prayer. I pray for the man I love to reach out, connect, and return to me, like how we used to be when we talked about anything and everything. I miss N.W. Let him feel it, too. N.W. and A.T. Amen. And here's a good one. Prayer ID 82056. To whomever is reading this, please help me in praying for the truth to reveal itself, whatever it may be. I need direction and a clear mind. My decision will affect my husband's legal petition to remain in this country. Thank you. Amen. And a kind of a double prayer. Prayer ID 82058 and 57. I'd like to pray for my teenage son to change. He seems to be heading down the wrong path, not doing well in school, hanging with the wrong... Pray that he gets himself together and does well in school and does better in his life. And pray that I get a job that's stress-free in a better location. I think these are all linked together. I'm so stressed out in my job, I don't know what else to do. Pray for a better job and location where I'd be happy and not stressed out. Amen. Prayer ID 82059. Please pray that my daughter gets the right outfit for her prom and has a beautiful night and gets past her sadness and anxiety about this. Amen. That's an important night. That is a very important night. I got into a fight, my prom night. Guy pulled my ponytail. I had a ponytail down my waist, and he pulled it and called me a bad name. And I said, okay, that's done. That's it. Prayer ID 82061. Please send prayers that I will find love. I'm ready to be in a loving and respectful relationship. I wonder if the guy that we, I got in a fight with listening to the program tonight. No hard feelings, man. You know, that was a long time ago. Please send prayers that I will find love. I'm ready to be in a loving and respectful relationship. I know the right person is out there. We just need a little help finding each other. Thank you for your prayers. Amen. And we're going to do one more. Prayer ID 82062. Please pray for protection from my narcissistic sister who has scapegoated, cursed, abused, and made my life hell to the point I have nothing to live for. Please pray that the tides will turn and that I will be protected so she has no control over me anymore. Amen. And why don't we have a moment of silent prayer and affirmation for all those in need of help and support tonight. Amen. We've been talking uh, about the tarot, which started uh, very interestingly by a family in Italy. Um, 
who decided that they were going to, for whatever reason, create a pack of cards for um, um, uh, whatever reason, ostensibly for a card game called Taroki, um, which came to be used for fortune telling. But in this pack of cards were apparently were encoded um, lots of symbols. Lots of simple symbols. And this family, the Visconti family of Italy, of Milan, Italy, had been steeped in political and spiritual battles and dramas, uh, battles for control and power all over Europe for centuries. We saw how they attempted to form a secret organization with a female pope to usurp the power of the pontiff, and how when they did create the Taroki, the papas, the female pope, appeared in it. And so we see that when they uh, commissioned this artist, the uh, Vernicio Bembo to paint the uh, the tarot. And that's what they had to do back then. You know, books and things. You didn't have printing presses. You sat down, and people, usually monks and artists, would sit and create a book by hand. Um, among those archetypes, all those strange and wonderful archetypes, the female pope appeared with. Magicians, devils, death, love, wise men, wise women, all sorts of strange symbols. So tonight we come to the empress and the emperor, the royal couple. Not at the end of the arcana, but Close to the beginning, really, three and four, um, we've seen. First of all, we see the uh, the fool, the uh, the card that stands alone, trump zero, neither at the beginning or the end. The great void, walk, walking apart from society, from the rules and regulations of society, the magician, the creator, the act of creation itself, really. The bolt of lightning that struck the primordial ocean, creating life itself, right? Isn't that how science says life, that says life begun? It's even sort of described in Genesis. The bolt of lightning of God hits the earth and boom, let there be light, and then life. It's metaphorically described. We don't, most of us don't think literally that there was nothing, and then this uh, disappeared. We think there had to be a physical creation, right? A physical creation, whether by a divine being or through the relentless laws of nature. There's a creator and a creation. And even the harshest skeptic would have to say that there was a creation, an act of creation. Creation came into being. This bolt of lightning, the magician, and then there was life. And we went through to the high priestess, the feminine, the uh, the passive feminine, the uh, intellectual, the merging of intelligence with the subconscious. And now we come to the empress and the emperor. And oh boy, do we have with the empress um, where to begin? Um well, let's start with the card itself. Let's just describe the card. We have a, a very earthy, attractive, sensual woman sitting on a throne, and she's sitting on a cushion. You'll notice we're talking about the Rider weight deck. She's sitting on a cushion, and um, then at her, at her, um, next to her, um, we have. Uh, uh, is it a shield or is it a pillow? And you really can't tell, but on the shield and the pillow is the sign of Venus. 
Um, and um, wearing a crown with 12 stars gathered in a cluster. Um, the symbol of Venus is at her feet. Um, there's a field of corn ripening in front of her. And behind her is a waterfall. She's raising a scepter. And on top of the scepter is a globe, which represents the entire world. And she is the queen. Around her neck are nine pearls, representing the nine planets. We have the twelve houses of the zodiac. We have the nine planets. This is truly the queen of the universe, the mother of all creation. The high priestess symbolizes this cosmic subconscious, what you could call, what Carl Jung may refer to as the uh, the group unconscious. These, if she, if the crown is twelve stars, the crown represents ruler. She is the ruler of the houses of the zodiac. She is married. Uh, the zodiac with the earth. She brings down the wisdom of the zodiac to the earth. Um, this is uh, the twelve houses of the zodiac, the twelve months of the year, the twelve hours on the clock. The stars themselves are not five-pointed stars, but six-pointed stars. They're, they're hexagrams. She has dominion over the laws of the world. This is the Solomon star. Now, let's go down to her robe. Again, we see pomegranates. Oh, well, my goodness. Uh, um, and it's a white robe, which is virginal. Our empress is a virgin. Even though she's the mother of all things, she's virgin mother. Um, these are pomegranates, sliced in half. And so this is fertility. She is the mother of all, mother of millions. Um, so we're going to stop. Well, let's keep going. We'll, we'll talk about the card. Then we're going to have to talk about pomegranates here in a minute. The scepters are the scepter is a is a female is a male symbol. This is the phallus, and this is a very masculine symbol. Um, but at the top of the empress is the orb of the world, and the orb is a feminine symbol. So, um, so the empress rules, but she has a different type of energy. Um, even though she has the powerful male rod, at the top is the softer, uh, organizing, um, uh, nurturing uh, feminine orb. Now, the cushion she sits upon is usually red, and this is the color of sexual passion and love. Um, uh, red sometimes associated with blood and uh, war, but in this sense, we believe it is passion and sensuality. I mean, it's a it's a cushion, and if you look at it, she's sitting up, but that cushion is is uh, it, that's a divan. You know, that's a couch that you lay back on it. So we believe our our empress here is a bride, ready to receive her emperor for the consummation of the marriage. Now we have this field of wheat. So again, we have abundance, fruitfulness, um, fecundity, um, multiplication of images, her robe bursting with ripe fruit, uh, wheat, the field bursting with wheat, in the back, trees. Uh, this is uh, the sign of the uh, multiplicity and the fertility of Empress. Now the waterfall is a cycle. Uh, water, the water flows down the waterfall, hits the stream that flows to the ocean, it evaporates, rains. It's a, it's a never-ending cycle, perpetual, uh, perpetual cycle of life. And um, then we have the heart-shaped sealed with Venus. Uh, obviously, there's love, romance. Uh, Venus is the um, goddess of love and sensuality and beauty. Um, this sort of speaks of itself. Um, the um, you know, what, what we're seeing here is a card very inviting. 
And in some cards, the Empress is seen, actually drawn. If you look at the Tarot of Marseille, the Empress is pregnant. She's the very picture of fertility. So, what do we, you know, come on now. Um, <laughs> pomegranates. Um, in Northwestern Europe, um, um, the, the goddess was the goddess of corn. She was the corn goddess. So, we're looking at the idea of nature. This is nature personified. Nature is nothing if not productive. When spring hits, there are two things that are going on in nature, screwing and eating and growing. Everything is multiplying. The flowers are blooming. The birds are laying eggs. The insects are laying eggs. Um, boys and girls are after each other. Uh, that's all you think about is multiplying. What we're looking at here is the very image, the very image of that desire of life to replicate itself. And so we have the number three at the top. Uh, the number three is produced by the cards before it, one and two. And just as numbers one and two sit specifically for male and female, right, magician and high priestess, the number three signifies the child produced by the union of the magician and the high priestess. This child is born as a as a pure creature of nature, untainted by the control of the magician and the intellectual um, contemplation of the high priestess. No ego, uh, no constraints, just a creature of pure passion no no labels no um, um, uh, inhibitions and one of the goals of um, primordial missing is to strip away the constraints of labeling and of um, unnatural teachings and return to this natural state and our natural state is happy and healthy, free of expression, free of guilt, and in a uh, commercial economy, prosperous. And so the empress is an archetype. So she's also, if she's the child, she's also the mother. Later on in the minors, you strip the cards down into other uh, pieces. For instance, uh, the empress is the sum of all the queens, right? Uh, if we have the queen of... Uh, uh, the Queen of Wands and the Queen of Coins and the Queen of Cups, um, uh, Queen of uh, Wands, coin, uh, Swords. Each one of those, each queen rules the domain. You know, the Queen of Cups is she's the queen of uh, of emotions. Queen of Swords, you know, the queen of um, of control, of combat. Uh, uh, queen of Wands, action. Uh, but the Empress is the is the uh, uh, all the queens combined. She's not the queen of anything. She's the queen of everything. We don't say that she rules money. We don't say she rules love. We don't say she rules um, action. We don't say that she rules conflict. She's the queen of everything. She's every queen combined. Only in the minors do we break the archetypes down into specifics. It's the same thing with the emperor. He's not the king of anything. He's the king of everything. So motherhood is the parent. This is this is the source of the child. And the child is very direct. Uh, mother mother love is very direct. It's uh, unselfish, it's ungiving. Ch child love, though, child is the selfish love, isn't it? Uh, so throughout history, people have identified motherhood with nature. We talk about um, uh, parenting nature, maternal instinct. Um, so the term great mother for the earth itself, mother nature. So if you're, if you're looking at the empress uh, in divinatory nature, we're looking at a very complex thing. Uh, it's not just a simple thing. It's not, okay, this is your mom. Uh, it's not that simple. 
Because let's look at the pomegranate. The pomegranate turns up a lot in these um, rider weight decks. Um, the pomegranate is, at its most simplest and commonest, a symbol of prosperity and a symbol of uh, fertility. Um, in ancient Greece, um, today even, when uh, uh, a young married couple buys a home, it's customary for the first gift to be a pomegranate, which is buried under their doorstep to um, uh, attract prosperity and love. And um, the, uh, the little tuft on the top of the pomegranate that looks like a crown, we see that quite a lot in uh, symbolism. Um, and uh, if you look in the uh, Christianity, um, the pomegranate's mentioned in the Bible a lot. Uh, in ancient, uh, in the Middle East, in ancient Middle East, they put the pomegranate on the coins quite a bit because it's mentioned so often in the Bible. Uh, the fruits, the pomegranates were brought back to Moses to demonstrate how, how fertile the promised land was. Um, the uh, robe of the Hebrew high priest had pomegranates embroidered on the hem, and uh, the uh, veil on the holy temple also had pomegranates on them. This is a very sacred fruit. Um, some Hebrew scholars believe that the pomegranate was the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, not an apple. I don't know where the apple comes from. That I really don't. The pomegranate was said to be the forbidden fruit. The forbidden fruit is often linked to the underworld. Uh, Persephone, who was given to Hades in Greek mythology as a bride, was given a pomegranate to eat. And as long as she did not eat the seeds, she could return home to her mother. Well, she was tempted and ate the seeds, and so she had to go back uh, to Hades with, uh, uh, with her devilish husband. Why the pomegranate? Why the pomegranate? Um, in uh, the Kabbalah, in the Jewish mystical tradition Kabbalah, the pomegranate symbolized the mystical experience. Is it because they're so full of seeds? Um, you know, I cannot tell you. Um, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. Um, and um, I, I will tell you that uh, if you look in almost every culture, there's uh, some mythos around the pomegranate. Maybe you cut it and it bleeds. Um, it's a very, very interesting card, uh, very interesting symbol. Let's take a break for station identification, and we shall return with more. Not about the pomegranate. We said enough about it. The LMC Radio Network is a media alliance whose excellent shows include the Lucky Mojo Hoodoo Root Work Hour, Catherine Ironwood, Condom and Molly, Sundays, 3 to 4.30, the Crystal Silence League Hour with John St. Germain, Tuesdays, 5 to 6, Blue Flag Root Radio with Lady Muse, Fridays, 4 to 5, and The Witch, the Priestess, and the Cauldron with Elvira Love and Phoenix LeFay, Fridays, 6 to 7, all time specific, at 3 hours for Eastern, Sponsored by the Lucky Mojo Curio Company in Forestville, California, and online at luckymojo.com. Well, let's talk about the Emperor. Here he sits, not on a soft throne, but a hard throne. This is the throne that looks like it's made of granite. It's carved from stone. Not No comfort for this guy. He's sitting there rigid and upright, not relaxed. Not smiling as we see the empress. He's wearing a crown too. Um, and it has uh, stones that are red, orange, and yellow. And there's many theories about what those stones are. Um, I, I think they're the stones from Aaron's shield myself. That's They're stones of divination and wisdom. Um, there are lots of theories about what they are. Um, that's that's what I think they are, the stones from Aaron's divinatory shield. Um, <clears throat> and then we have the rams, signs of Aries, the ram, the um, uh, which is also linked with Mars. These are uh, obviously the the, um, the prima facie interpretation is aggression, war, 
power, authority. Um, you know, Ares being ruled by Mars, that's the planet of war, right? He's sitting there dressed in armor, rigid and unyielding, complete protection. You know, this is the person who protects and rules. And then we have the scepter. Now, the scepter is usually a very phallic symbol. Uh, his is shaped as an ankh, very manly. Um, the ankh is a, a symbol of great power, but also great mysticism. It's used to uh, confer magically health, immortality, uh, fortune. Um, and uh, now, in all this manliness, in his left hand, he's holding an orb, the feminine symbol. The empress holds a masculine staff topped by an orb. The king holds a masculine staff, and he's got the orb in his left hand. If we look very closely, and with a rider weight deck, you do. You have to look very closely. You'll see all kinds of things in there. We see a little crown on top of that orb. Is that a pomegranate that we see? Has he plucked his empress's, one of his empress's pomegranate? Is that what he has in his hand? Maybe. I, I tend to think so. I tend to think that's a, that's a uh, pomegranate. Again, he's dressed in red. This is power. This is power. And behind him, we see mountains. Mountains always. Everything is always a symbol. These are nothing. There is accidental. Mountains are. Oh, they so much. Moses went to the top of the mountain to receive the word of God. Uh, pilgrims go to the top of mountains to receive wisdom from holy men and women and deities. Uh, you, you top a mountain, you cross a mountain to get to the Holy Land. Um, Hannibal, Alexander, Napoleon, Caesar had to cross the Alps to conquer. Um, it's, a, it's the struggle to get to the goal. Um, you always have to go high to achieve what you want. Um, so this is... This is the, the struggle to get there. I imagine that he got to that, that throne by crossing those mountains. And then there's a river. You have to cross over the river. You have to go from this side to that side. You cross over um, the consciousness. You go from the material world to the unconscious world. You have to leave the world behind. You're looking at the hero's journey, basically. You, you leave childish things behind and cross the river. Um, he crossed the mountains, crossed the river, and mounted his throne. He left childhood behind to earn that long gray robe. He left home a boy, mounted the throne a king. There's a lot in there. There's a lot. Have the number four. Four is uh, a, a very stable number. Four legs to a table. Um, very there. Now, the emperor has a, a shawl. And there's a heart on it. So here he is wearing all this armor, all these rams and things, and there appears to be a heart. Uh, sometimes it looks like a ram. It could be another ram, but from certain, you look at it long enough, it could be a heart. It could be a ram. It's one of those ambiguous symbols, the Rider weight deck. Um, and... Um, that's that's some of our uh, symbols from the emperor. The emperor often, uh, very simplistic, simplistically, is identified as a father um, or a person in charge. Now, it, it can be more that he's, again, the summation of all the kings in the deck. If we go back to childhood, um, psychologically, uh, the mother and the father are archetypes to a child. You know, to when we're children, our mother and father are gods. You know, mom, dad, that's what they are. And we don't think of them really as I mean, we can't, we're kids, right? They're they're the givers of food, they're the givers of punishment. Um, our moms give us life. Um, the father in traditional times, during the times of the taro being conceived and the uh, even the rider weight, were usually very remote 
um, they usually became they were usually the uh, the breadwinner, the judge, the jury, the giver of punishment, uh, the person that you desperately craved their approval and their benediction. But it was the mother who was the nurturer. So we're looking at those archetypes here: the empress, the nurturing mother, the father, the stern but fair uh, father. So uh, to a child, the father represents society, right? The rule maker. The uh, if you break the rules, you'll you know punishment will descend upon you. Um, and if you start to get um, into the very complicated uh, realm of uh, Freudian psychology, which was becoming very popular um, around uh, the time a lot of people started to uh, think about these symbols, Jungian and Freudian psychology, the interaction of child to mother, child to father um, becomes very interesting because Freud, Freudian psychology was based very much on mythology, as was Jung. And Freud knew very well the the conflict of the Oedipus uh, dilemma that children are faced where they want to uh, supplant the father's role. So for the child to mature, he does indeed have to confront the father and possess the mother. He, At some point, the man will identify with his father. Uh, this was uh, very popular back in the uh, 80s and 90s when uh, adult men, in order to uh, reach a full maturity, would uh, uh, attempt to uh, connect with their fathers. Sometimes their fathers are long dead, but there was a, a lot of, there was a movement, you know, men's movement. This is when men were going out in the woods and drumming and taking their shirts off and howling and stuff. It was uh, quite popular back in the 80s and 90s, this men's movement. So back in the uh, ancient times, um, you understand that before the uh, domination of the, uh, the uh, male-oriented church, mostly goddesses were revered. and uh, But there was a king. So you had a goddess worship, and then there were kings that ruled on earth. So um, in, in societies that were ruled by goddesses, uh, the male king was often sacrificed to the god, goddess, and uh, they would... Uh, dismember him um, and plant him into the ground to create um, um, ne the necessary conditions for prosperity in the coming year. I, I, I'll get letters about that. Go, oh, you're, you know, you're um, savaging uh, the old religions. It's history. This is just history. And then um, later on, when the male-dominated religions took over, uh, the king came to realize the law personified, and uh, and society became very repressed. The free sexuality, the uh, celebration of uh, fertility became sexualized and repressed, and that dominates to this very day. Laws are being made to suppress sexuality, which is just crazy. It's just crazy. And so we have this uh, patriarchal society that says, uh, no, you cannot express your natural sexuality. And so we see this drama uh, played out in lots of myths, right? Um, um, we see these myths where um, um, there were mothers of monsters, like uh, Loki's wife, uh, Hela, or... Who was, was or was Hela a daughter? Uh, but anyway, Loki bred with the giantess, and the giantess gave birth to all the monsters. And uh, there was uh, uh, Marduk, who was a hero of Babylon, uh, killed. Um, I should have made notes of this. Uh, killed Tiamat, who was um, the original mother creation, because all of a sudden something happened to her and she began giving birth to monsters instead of giving birth to people and animals. She started giving birth to monsters, so uh, Marduk killed her. Um, these are not stories people made up. They, these are stories that people um, compose to make sense of things that were actually happening, to make sense of the world around them, that things used to be really good and innocent, and all of a sudden this sort of darkness entered the world, and it was expressed in story. Um so 
along comes Imperial Rome, the very epitome of what the emperor symbolizes. This concept of law clamping down on chaos. We will impose order on the world. Um, it became the idea of law and order became a virtue in itself. If you study the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, they made law and order a virtue. This was if you obeyed the law, you were a virtuous person. Um, the argument was that no progress can be made in conditions of anarchy. Well, you know, the anarchists argued differently. Um, bad laws must be changed, but first the law must be obeyed at all costs. The law must be obeyed at all costs. And you know, they enforced this. People were whipped, burned, crucified, broken on the wheel, uh, publicly dismembered for minor infractions. So, because the, the Romans believed at one point in this uh, law and order at any cost that any other approach would destroy society, that society would crumble. If you're thinking we're approaching that now, no, man, you should read about the Romans. They they went crazy about it. You think, oh, laws are getting too restrictive, the government's going crazy, we're on the verge of a pocket. No, no, no. I've been around a long time. Things things were worse in the 60s. I remember the 60s and 70s, things were worse than they are now. Uh, this is a hiccup. So in the emperor's most positive aspect, he he indicates a, a just and well-ruled society. The uh, members are allowed to pursue their personal needs and development. He rules with a firm, a stern, but a fair and benevolent um, uh, eye. And we know, here's the thing, we know the natural world is chaotic. You know, we, we know that in nature, nature is chaotic, but it works. It works out fine. There's a balance that's restored. This is the empress. She's, you notice, if you look at her clothes, you know, she's kind of rumpled, um, laying kind of lazily on this bed. Every, nature's springing up around her. Um, the king, a well-ordered, that's a well-ordered gentleman. He's imposing control over it. So natural world's chaotic. and uh, But for man to survive, we have to have a well-ordered society. That's what we see in this couple. Nature's chaotic. Nature's fine. Man does not survive in nature. You know, within our cities, we do well, but take any of us. So, well, we we did, yeah, but we don't now. We don't now. It's, we live in we live well in our cities. You take any one of us and drop us in the savannah. Um, you drop us in the Amazon. Uh, man, most of us, and you know I'm right. Most of, we wouldn't survive a night. We'd get eaten by something. Um, one of those ants that kill us uh, with a bite. One of those spiders that burrow under your skin, one of those catfish that uh, uh, sting you, and then they burrow into your belly. Uh, not to, I'm, I'm just talking about some of the things you, you may not have even seen or heard about. Uh, not to mention alligators, uh, jaguars, uh, <laughs> crocodiles, snakes that swallow you whole. So we have this royal couple, the empress who represents the chaos of nature, the emperor who imposes order. Next week, the the Arafat, the religious hierarchy. See you next week.